You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. True crime gives us many examples of the anti-hero. The character that we find ourselves possibly rooting for, even though they do not possess or show the traits that are common in a hero. The anti-hero is not idealistic and certainly often works outside the boundaries of morality. Many of us think people like Gary Plachet, who killed his son's kidnapper and molester in 1984. This week, we are going to cover another person who was in that same vein. This man, in 2016, would track down a number of sex offenders by getting their information from the nation's public registry on the matter. He would attack at least three men who had previously been convicted of sexual crimes and, after being dubbed the Alaskan Avenger, he would eventually wind up behind bars. Hello, and welcome to episode 63 of Gone But Never Forgotten, Attacker to Some, Anti-Hero to Many, Jason Vuklovich. Welcome back to GBNF. I am happy to have you all along with me this week again as we delve into one of the more interesting and sometimes polarizing sides of true crime. When is it okay for us to cheer for the person who theoretically is the villain? What has to be a part of the story for us to cheer for someone exhibiting traits that we may not normally find appealing? This is one of those lifelong journeys for many of us. It has to do with sense of humor, it has to do with how dark and twisted we are, and it has to do with personal preference as pertains to whether the enemy of our enemy is our friend, so to speak. Before we jump right into the episode, I do want to welcome anyone that is listening to head over to patreon.com forward slash podcast to support the show and also get access to all kinds of perks depending on your level of support for the show. One thing you always get is a weekly video of me going more in depth about a few things that stand out to me personally about the case that we discussed for that week. I love to share, I love to talk, and I love to interact with each and every one of you. So please, come become a full-fledged goner and be a part of the show. And with that out of the way, let's dive into this week's case, which you may also find to be a psychotherapy session for you as well by the end of it, as you hear about a man who did bad things, but has become known as a good guy for doing them. What will you wind up feeling about this case. 
Jason Vukovic was born in Anchorage, Alaska, in the United States on June 25th of 1975. He was born to a single mother. He would later get adopted officially when his mother remarried to a man named Larry Lee Fulton. However, in that adoption, Jason did not get received a father in that transaction. Instead, he inherited an abuser. Jason would later explain that he had a hard time reconciling things as a child. Both his mother and Larry were dedicated to the Christian faith, and they had their children in church every time that a service was available. Jason recalls being in church as many as three days of the week. That's why even from a young age, he became very confused about faith, family, and everything in between. Larry would use the pretense of having late-night prayer sessions to take advantage of Jason and to molest him. Jason and his half-brother, Larry's son Joel, were both abused physically and sexually by Larry when they were young. Joel recalled later at trial when he and Jason would huddle up against the wall as far away from Larry as they could to try and stay away from him. Joel said that he often tried to take the brunt of whatever Larry was dishing out because he felt that he should protect Jason. Mercifully, in 1989, the family would seemingly be saved as Larry would be charged and convicted with second-degree abuse and molestation of a minor. However, the sparing would not last long as even though Larry was convicted, he was given a three-year suspended sentence, which means that as long as Larry abided by rules put in place by the court, he would not need to serve his sentence. As such, Larry went back home and was able to continue abusing Joel and Jason. Shockingly, even though Larry himself had become a convicted sex predator, he moved back into that family home, continued to harm his children, and not one person ever came to follow up on the conviction or to check on Larry or his family. Joel and Jason would finally make their own decision and run away from home when Jason was 16. Jason would then decide that he wanted to be far from home and wanted to be far from everything that he had previously had in his life in Alaska. So he moved to Washington State. Because he was still a minor at 16 and with no form of identification because his parents kept it from him when he ran away, he had no ability to take on any job that was legal. Because of that, Jason would wind up descending into a life of crime to make ends meet and to try to get by. He would later say in a letter from prison, quote, After being physically and mentally abused by a predator, my life was forever changed. I literally gave my own existence no value or concern. I became a thief and a liar and went on to make many poor choices throughout my life." Unquote. Jason's criminal history would cover across the states of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, California, and he even wound up back in Alaska. The crimes would mostly include theft, fraud, and drug charges. It's really heartbreaking to look back at his life and really see a pattern that's not uncommon for anyone who is the victim of abuse. Jason would say, quote, 
My silent understanding that I was worthless, a throwaway. The foundations laid in my youth never went away, unquote. Absolutely heartbreaking, but such a real and true story for many people who are abused in any way, and especially at a young age. The damages that are done can place the victims on a path that they never return from. In 2008, Jason would even be accused of assaulting his ex-wife, which is something that he still vehemently denies. Up until 2016, Jason would find himself in and out of jail because of the crimes that he had committed, and honestly, one can only imagine what would have been on his mind while he was serving time and also dealing with, or not dealing with, the trauma that he was also carrying from his past and the abuse that came at the hands of his adopted father. In 2016, that would all come to a boiling point for Jason, and he would symbolically start to attack his past in the form of other predators. Jason decided to study Alaska's sex offender registry. In the United States, that is public information, so that you can be aware if a predator is living in your vicinity. As he looked the list over, over and over again, he started to create a list of men who were on the list because they had been convicted of sexual crimes against children. The more that he thought about it, the more he realized that this is what he wanted and maybe needed to do. The sins that were committed against him needed to be atoned for in some way or some fashion. And this is where I think that the case really starts to get to you on a psychological level. I think that nearly everyone can agree that people who commit sexual crimes against children, especially, are not given the attention and the sentencing that such a crime should carry. I think that many people, like myself, believe that way more often than not, a person's entire life can be affected and ruined by these types of people. And then here, in Jason, we find a man who went through that, and he wants to become a vigilante and deal some punishment to those types of people. Is it okay to feel that that is okay? Let's carry on. Charles Lehman Alby was born on October 13, 1947, and he would be charged and convicted for second-degree abuse of a minor, meaning sexual abuse. The offense that he committed was on July 25, 2002, and he was convicted on January 1, 2013. On June 24, 2016, Jason would show up at the home of Charles Alby, and he would knock on the door. When Charles opened the door, Jason did not waste any time whatsoever, and he pushed his way into the home and demanded that Alby sit on his bed. Jason would go on to tell Albie that he knew what he had done and what he had been found guilty of because he looked him up on the registry. Jason would then slap Albie in the face multiple times, would rob him, and then leave. Albie would fire, file a report with the police and would describe Jason as a white man with shoulder-length dark hair who wore a black leather jacket and a baseball cap. Only three days later, on June 27, 2016, Jason would go to another man's house that he had come across on the registry. This man was 25-year-old Andre Barbosa. At 4 a.m., Jason would knock on Barbosa's door 
and Jason also had two females with him at the time. Barbosa would later tell police that a white man in a dark jacket and baseball cap asked him if his name was Barbosa. When he affirmed that he was indeed, Jason threatened him with a hammer and entered the home with the two women. Jason would then force Barbosa to sit in a chair and told him that they were at his house because of his crimes. Barbosa was convicted on a charge in 2014 of possession of child pornography. Jason would start calling Barbosa a pedophile, and he would punch Barbosa in the face quite a few times. He also threatened to, quote, bash his dome with the hammer. He told Barbosa that he was there to collect what Barbosa owed. Jason and one of the woman, women would steal many items from Barbosa's apartment, including his truck, while the entire ordeal was recorded on the phone of the second woman. So, as we can see with these first two victims, Jason roughed them up a bit, made some veiled threats, and stole from them. He certainly seemed to be okay with his own foray into this vigilante justice, and he would continue. On the third occasion, however, Jason would escalate the violence to an entirely new level. Wesley DeMarey was another 68-year-old man that was living in Alaska and on the sex offender list. He had been convicted of attempted sexual abuse of a minor in 2006, and Jason decided that he was going to be victim number three. Around 1 a.m. on June 29th, DeMarey woke up was woken up, sorry, by his roommate, who said that someone had smashed in one of their windows. Behind his roommate, though, was Jason. He told the roommate to leave the room. Jason would order Demaray onto his bed, and he refused to go there. At that point, Jason asked if he was a registered sex offender, Wesley Demaray, to which Wesley confirmed that yes, he was. Jason would then ask him if he felt that he had paid for the crimes that he had committed, and Wesley told him that he did believe he had paid for his crimes. Jason would tell him that he had not paid enough. He would again demand that Wesley go on to his bed, but Wesley refused to do so a second time. Jason, angry now, demanded that Demaray get on his knees. When Wesley again refused, Jason started to attack him in the head with the hammer, and he said, quote, I am an avenging angel. I'm going to mete out justice for the people that you hurt, unquote. The victim that Wesley was convicted of attempted sexual abuse on was a small girl who was a student in kindergarten. Wesley had only served nine months in prison and three years in a sex offender treatment program for his crimes. Perhaps knowing how young that poor girl was drove Jason to up this level of aggression. Surely he was also aggravated even more when Wesley appeared to not be afraid of him like the other two seemed to have been. Jason would beat Wesley until he was unconscious, and Jason would steal his laptop computer and various other personal items, just like he had done with his first two victims. He then fled the home. When Wesley regained consciousness, he would find himself slumped on the floor and in a pool of his own blood. His roommate had already called 911. Wesley would say that he was only dressed in his underwear and they were soaked in his blood. Wesley would barely survive this attack and he suffered a concussion, 
a fractured skull, a broken thumb, and one of his eyes was swollen shut. He would wind up spending two weeks in the hospital before he was released again. As we can see, there was a significant ramping up of the attack here. We went from slaps to punches to an all-out assault here on Wesley. Jason would be found and arrested shortly thereafter as he was sitting in his car a few blocks away from Wesley's home. Inside of the car, the arresting officers would also find a hit list of sorts, which included the names, addresses, and crimes of people who were on the National Sex Offender List and living in Alaska. Three of the names were crossed off of the list. You guessed it. Charles Albee, Andre Barbosa, and Wesley DeMarais. The police knew that they had their man. They had captured the Avenging Angel. Jason would be arrested on the spot and was later charged with 18 counts of assault, robbery, burglary, and theft. Initially, Jason would plead not guilty to those charges, but he opted to make a deal with the prosecution instead. In 2017, Jason would write a letter to the Anchorage Daily News and he would state that he would happily plead guilty to charges and serve the combined sentences of the three men that he had attacked, which was only eight years and nine months. He even added that he would tack on the sentence that his father had been handed, which was an additional three years. In the end, Jason would plead guilty to third-degree assault, first-degree assault, and first-degree burglary. In return, over a dozen other charges were dismissed. Jason was sentenced to 28 years in prison, five more years that would be suspended, and an additional five years of probation. I know that my personal opinions are largely left to be a part of the Patreon reaction videos, but I have to say that this makes me sick. I do not subscribe in large part, obviously, to vigilante justice, but what I do find outrageous is that you have three men that were convicted of sexual crimes against children in possession of child pornography, and they were given less than nine years of total jail time. Four people for less than 12 years of given jail time if you include Jason's father. In contrast to that, Jason was given 28 years in jail, plus more for slapping a man, punching a man, and severely beating a man and theft. To me, this makes no sense. If you do really want to get into the trenches on this one, you can say that many lives were ruined by these aforementioned men, and at best you could say that one man's life was significantly impacted by what Jason did. These hardly seem like they can be sentences from the same country to me. I digress though, what we're looking at here is a case of someone who did choose to attack three people who had previously committed crimes and served time in the prison system based on what was deemed to be a suitable punishment for their crimes. So, how does that make you feel? Do you believe that these four abusers deserved more time and thus deserved the attacks? Do you believe that they had done the same they had done the crime and served the time? Or do you think that any of Justin's actions, Jason's actions were justified? And for his part, after the dust settled and the sentencing was handed out, 
Jason would write another open letter to everyone, which I'm actually going to read in full here because I feel like it tells his story better than anyone else could and also is very inspiring. Something that I don't think you can find in most letters that are written from inside the walls of a prison. An open letter to the community. I am writing today in an attempt to correct a poor message I sent last fall in the form of a plea offer via a letter to the Alaska Dispatch News. In that letter, I suggested that my sentence should be no longer than those served by my victims and my abuser. That suggestion resonated with many in the public, but I write to correct that sentiment now. There is no place for vigilante justice in an ordered society, and I want to deter others that find themselves in a similar position as I found myself in in the summer of 2016. To those who understand how it feels to live through abuse and carry it with you, let me share my story in an effort to prevent its repetition. I was born here in Anchorage in 1975. My father adopted me around the age of four. Both of my parents were dedicated Christians and had us in every church service available, two or three times each week. So, you can imagine the horror and confusion I experienced when this man who adopted me began using the late, late night prayer sessions to molest me. Also, he beat me with a custom-made 2x4. I recall the scribed handle with wrap tape to protect his hands and holes drilled in the length of the device. He preferred to use a two-handed grip and beat me between my butt and the back of my knees. These beatings were quite frequent, and some days it was difficult to stand upright. My older brother ran away from home at some point, and I was devastated that he would abandon me with these people. He was eventually arrested as a runaway and decided to tell the police the truth. As a result of the investigation, they charged and later convicted my adoptive father, Larry Lee Fulton, of second-degree abuse of a minor. I am ashamed to recall the sessions that I was questioned privately by the prosecutor for some reason. I lied and downplayed the abuse. I remember that my family had decided my brother was wrong to have gone to the police and that he shouldn't have told anyone. I can attest that ultimately it didn't really matter what was said or done. His plea deal gave him a suspended sentence, not one single day in jail for beating and molesting his children. Immediately after this occurred, they pulled me out of school, sold the house in Anchorage, and moved us out to Wasilla. There, I was placed in homeschool, and the isolation was complete. The state of Alaska did no follow-ups, no periodic check-ins, no mandatory counseling for the kids involved, nothing. I was 13 or 14 when my brother ran away. By the time I was about 16, I couldn't take the beatings anymore and began thinking of running away. I had always been a hard worker, commercial fishing, working for hunting guides, bagging groceries at Safeway, but no amount of work could keep me away from home all the time. I began saving whatever money I could. After climbing out my bedroom window one night in Wasilla, I came back the next day to retrieve my belongings. I found what they were allowing me to keep in trash bags on the front porch. They withheld my driver's license and social security card. I recall my mother saying they didn't want to facilitate my flight into sin. 
I was trying to put as much distance as I could between myself and the torments of home, so I flew to Spokane, Washington. I found work easily in Spokane, but soon learned I would not be paid without a state ID. Hungry and desperate, thousands of miles from my hometown, I looked for money left where I could take it. Health clubs and gyms, I began stealing from lockers. About five months after arriving in Washington, police arrested me for theft and forging checks. I then did my first stint in juvenile hall. Nine months later, I was out. Out soon returned for sim- but soon returned for similar crimes. Most of all, I feared being sent home, but it never came up. Being a thief and a liar fit nicely with my lack of self-worth, my silent understanding that I was worthless, a throwaway. The foundations laid in my youth never went away. They simply remained hidden, and everything I chose to do was built on those thoughts and feelings from the past. I had started down a long, winding path of deception and self-abuse. I became a full-time, regular pot smoker to try and dull the painful effects of my upbringing. I attempted to hold regular jobs and was successful for periods of time. But, without any support system or real family circle to relate to, I continually made poor choices that cost me. At 18, I was arrested for driving without a license. This happened about eight times over the next two to three years. Each time I would spend a month in prison, each time a little longer than the last time. By age 20, I had spent roughly half half of my adult life in jail, moving from city to city in the lower 48 became the norm for me. I followed the construction jobs wherever they led and lived only for the moment. If a project ended and I was laid off, I wouldn't hesitate to steal to support myself. This behavior continued until as I matured, sorry, this behavior continued as I matured, never saving money or planning for tomorrow. I existed only in the moment. Time and again, my choices reflect a lack of concern for myself and others. Many, many nights, I simply wanted to die. Ten years ago, I decided to move back to Alaska. I wanted to start over and live free in my home state. Maybe I could settle down and find some happiness in this beautiful place. I managed to do well until I lost my slope job. Again, I stole some credit cards and got myself sent to prison for a six-year sentence. Upon my release, I intended to live quietly, enjoy my freedom, and try to find satisfaction in the little things. This was short-lived. I soon violated my parole and was arrested for eluding. I served three more years in prison for that offense. This takes us to the summer of 2016. I was living simply, taking joy and satisfaction in the basics. Little things like grocery shopping, mowing the lawn, and pulling weeds brought me great happiness. I began to hear things in the community about kids being molested, rumors of men abusing their positions or authority to take advantage of children. I thought back to my experience as a child and felt the overwhelming desire to act. I took matters into my own hands and assaulted three pedophiles. In one instance, upon breaking into the house, the man immediately began punching me. I reached for a weapon, a hammer, and I fractured his skull. I regret that deeply and I'm sorry I took things that far. 
It was never my intention for someone to be that seriously injured. I want my story to serve as a deterrent. My choices led me to where I currently sit, looking at 20 years in prison. If you have already lost your youth like me due to a child abuser, please do not throw away your present and your future by committing acts of violence. There are many kind and loving things we can do to protect children. We must be patient, respect the law, and hope that someday those of us who have been cast aside will be remembered. Please, do not act out like I did. Cherish your own life and freedom. Learn from my story and seek peace, not retribution. If you hear of someone abusing children in your neighborhood, or if you want to take matters into your own hands, please call someone who loves you and talk it out. I offer all of you this view of my life in the hope that it will help people avoid the pitfalls and traps I walked into. I began serving my life sentence many, many years ago. It, has, it was handed down to me by an ignorant, hateful, poor substitute for a father. I now face losing most of the rest of my life due to a decision to lash out at people like him. To all those... Um, who have lived like I have, love yourself and those around you. This is truly the only way forward. There is time left for you to avoid my predicament, but for me, I will face a sentence dictated by the law. The course of my life is now inextricably intertwined with the operation of state law. Though I have been resentful of this in the past, I now accept it as the only legitimate way that civilized people should regulate conduct and maintain order. On December 13th, when I am sentenced, I will accept as fair whatever sentence my judge imposes. I urge anyone who reads this to engage the proper channels to effect positive change. Do not glamorize my actions. Believe me when I say there is nothing glamorous about my life now. Those are incredibly powerful words that were shared by Jason. This is a man who is clearly reflective and aware now of what led him down the life path that he was on and what was the driving force in his life and that be being that being revenge and hate. I think that each and every one of us can take heed of the words that he wrote and realize that while we too have likely had bad experiences and ran into plenty of bad people over the years, our future does not have to be predicated or, predict or predicted by that. So, there you have it. The story of a man, a criminal in the true sense of the word, who took justice into his own hands for a period of time and really did some horrible things. There is no denying that. A crime is a crime. But I think that in this story, there's so much more to the story. And that, and that is what I've touched on. Each and every one of us can take from a case like this and words like this from Jason. Maybe this is too deep for a, too, a true crime podcast. But I think that we all realize that things that happen in our lives can shape and model and form each and every one of us. Good things and bad things all have long-term effects like one would not believe. So, if you are one of the lucky people out there that have been placed in a position of power with our children or are around our children, please remember at all costs that they are our future and you can ruin their entire lives by doing the wrong things with them and around them. 
This is clearly what happened with Jason, and he was led down a path that had a very blurred sense of right and wrong because he was broken, felt worthless, and believed that he did not deserve better. If you're like Jason, please know that regardless of what other people have said and done about you and to you in your life, you are better and can do better and can truly overcome your past if you work hard at it and try to reverse those curses that have been hung over you for your entire life. I will leave it right there, I think, for this week. And may wind up having a longer Patreon video for our Patreon, our patrons if I get on my high horse with this one and really get into the ins and outs of my feels. So, meet me over there when you finish this episode and we can have some more in-depth conversation together. Thank you for listening again to Gone But Never Forgotten. I will see you right back here again for our next episode. Take care and be better.